Let's open up our Bibles together to Genesis chapter 11 again. Last week at the beginning of chapter 11, the people tried to consolidate their power. And they began building this city and a tower in an attempt to make a connection with the spiritual realm. And no doubt this was an overtly occult attempt at spirituality, and God did not allow this to continue. Of course, we're talking about the Tower of Babel. And God decided to intervene by scrambling the languages of the people. And he did so along family lines, so that he wouldn't split up the family unit. And that's instructive to us. God takes care for families. He loves families. And that's the basic unit of our society even today. He divides people based on their language along their family lines. And that was to force them to disperse from that city. And chapter 10 gave us the families that, he, that they split up into. And we can figure out pretty easily where most of those families ended up settling. And we looked at that going through chapter 10. However, chapter 10 didn't spend too much time on Shem's genealogy, even though Shem's genealogy is the most important of Noah's three sons, because it's through Shem that we get the Israelites and then Jesus Christ. The reason he didn't spend that time on Shem's genealogy in chapter 10 was because he's coming back there in chapter 11, and that's what we'll see for the first part of this morning. As we pick up in chapter 11, after the dispersion at the Tower of Babel, the genealogy of Shem is laid out for us in more detail. And this is the line that will follow to Abraham, who we'll see today as well, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and eventually Jesus Christ. And this line of Shem's descendants sets us on the path to encounter the birth of the nation Israel. Let's read through verse 17. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. So in these first few verses this morning, we have Shem, of course, his son Arphaxad, then Salah, then Eber, then Peleg. And Eber is going to turn out to be an important name because out of his name came the designation of Hebrew. It's also spelled Heber, H-E-B-E-R, and that's where we derive the name of the Hebrews. And he's regarded as the founder of the Hebrews. One of his sons is Peleg, who we've looked at previously. Peleg's name means division, 
and it was likely in Peleg's day that the dispersion from Babel occurred. And you'll notice as we're reading through these names and ages that go along with them, there's this sharp decline in lifespans right after the flood. And we see that Noah lived 950 years, but his son Shem only lived 600 years. Very sharp decline there. And then Shem's son, Arphaxad, lived 438 years. And so it continues to decline. And the lifespans continue that trend downward, albeit at a slower rate, until they come to around what they are today. And that observation alone strongly suggests that the conditions before the flood had a lot to do with the long lifespans of the antediluvian men. Perhaps that vapor canopy provided protection from the sun's radiation, and mutations occurred at a drastically reduced rate before the flood. And possibly the denser atmosphere allowed better gas exchange in the lungs. And all of that would lead up to longer lifespans. I want to, to take a second while we're looking at these lifespans to revisit the fact that these men were very advanced. This is not what we're thinking of when we see you know, National Geographic's depictions of cavemen. Right? These were very advanced men in their civilizations. We're in school for about 20 years, you know, give or take whether we go to college or not. We're learning. We're soaking in information about 20 years. And then we start working. We work for probably 40 years. Then we retire. Maybe live in retirement another 20. But could you imagine if 40 years into your career, you were just getting started. How much better would you be if you did the same thing for several hundred years? That would be tough for some of us. But there would be a lot of opportunity to learn, to grow, and for your sons, their sons, to learn from you. Lots of knowledge being passed along through the generations. These were not brutes. They weren't uneducated. And they did have a high degree of civilization. Verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Sarug. After he begot Sarug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. So here in this next section, we have Peleg, Reu, Sarug, Nahor, and Terah. We're introduced to Terah, who is Abram's, who later becomes Abraham, his father. Terah is Abraham's father. And 
I think we all know who we're talking about when we say either Abraham or Abram. Okay, of course, there is a distinction in Scripture when his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. Stephen, in Acts 7, refers to him as Abraham before he was called by God. So I'm not going to take too much care to distinguish between those two. I think we all know who we're talking about, so please forgive me if I, if I switch those two out. And these sons of Terah, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, sons of Terah, are not listed in the order that they were born. They're listed in order of importance, right? Abraham, obviously the most important, Nahor, and Haran. There are some other reasons as well that we think that Abram might not have been the firstborn son of Terah, but the royal line goes through many sons who were not the firstborn. So it would not be unconventional, per se, for Abram to not be the firstborn here. And there are a couple of ways that we can approach this genealogy and the others in Genesis as well. There are those who regard these genealogies as providing a strict chronology of events and providing a strict chronology specifically from the creation to the flood, the flood to Babel, and then the Babel to Abram. And that's one way that some people approach this. There are also those who would not necessarily consider this to be a source of strict chronology, meaning a timeline for us. And it's true that there may be some gaps in the genealogy of Genesis 11. But we're talking along the lines of a few hundred years, maybe a thousand years, 2,000 years. We are not talking about the kind of gaps that it would take to fit the view of evolutionary descent of man or ascent of man into this text. We still can't do that, even if there are gaps in Genesis 11's genealogy. So don't let somebody come along telling you that man has evolved over a million years ago because there are gaps in Genesis 11. Okay, we clear? That's The difference there is not quantitative, it's qualitative. Because when we go from something like a thousand to a million years, that we're not even talking along the same lines. Like there's that's so much separation. And I like to illustrate it this way. If I say I'm gonna pay you back in a thousand days, you're like, oh, all right. Like that's a while to wait, but uh, you'll get your money back. I say, okay, I'll pay you back in a million days. It's never gonna happen. Right? That's not a, a quantitative difference, that's qualitative. And, and that's what I mean by that. So we cannot harmonize the atheistic worldview of evolution with this biblical worldview. It, it can't happen for many reasons. And you can't try to insert that kind of a time frame into Genesis 11. It doesn't work. Now, I'll mention just briefly that James Usher, he's famous for making his timeline of the Bible. And that's, if you've seen that big timeline that I bring sometimes, 
that is based off of Usher's chronology. He presumes that this is a complete record and that each of these fathers directly precede each of these sons. He, he presumes no gaps in Genesis 11. So that's where he's coming from. It doesn't make any difference to Jesus, doesn't make any difference to our faith, but that is something to be aware of as a Christian, you know, being able to defend what you believe. Now, verse 27, I'm sorry, let's start 26. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It's mentioned again. You know it's important. Haran begot Lot. Abram, Nahor, and Haran were brothers. And again, these sons of Terah are not necessarily listed in the order they were born, but rather in the order of importance. And Noah's three sons were also listed this way, not in order of birth, but in order of importance. Genesis 5.32. There are towns in Assyria that are named Nahor and Haran. Now, whether these towns were named after the men or the men named after the towns, we don't know. But there are towns that go by those names. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran, Abraham's brother, begot Lot. Now, we want to pay attention there. We'll want to know who Lot is because he'll be showing up again in a few chapters. Lot was Abraham's nephew, his brother's son. And verse 28 gives us some insight into why Lot and Abram may have been so close with one another. Verse 28, And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Lot's father actually passed away prematurely before his dad. There was something of an untimely death there, and the author sees it fit to include this detail for us. We don't know how old Lot was when his dad passed away, but it's possible that Abram assumed responsibility of raising Lot. And at the very least, if Lot was a little older, Abraham oversaw Lot, kind of kept tabs with him, made sure he wasn't going off doing hood rat stuff with his friends, right? So Abraham takes some responsibility here for Lot, and that seems to be why they're so close later. And this makes even more sense when you read down a couple verses, and verse 30, you see that Sarai, Abraham's wife, was barren. She couldn't have any kids of her own. So naturally, that would incline Abram and Sarai to take in Lot as their own. Verse 29, Then Abram and Nahor took wives. And this is where we meet Sarai. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, 
the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So Abram took Sarai to be his wife, and we'll actually learn later that Sarai is Abram's half-sister. Okay, Same father, Terah, different mothers. Sarai was Abram's half-sister. And that'll be important as we go into even just chapter 12, our next chapter, and then even further down along the narrative. Now, of course, this is well before the law was given to Moses, which prohibited intermarriage within a family. So this is not against any laws, and there wasn't the same risk of genetic abnormality that there is today with marrying within a family. And it was very common to carry on your family line this way. Families had traditions, customs, as we do today, and they would carry on their family name by marrying close within. Now, also, if you think back to Babel, God divided along family lines and they dispersed. It would be necessary then for them to marry within a family because that's the only people that they could really understand, right? So this is very common in this day and necessary. The only problem that comes with this is one that Abraham creates for himself later. And we'll see how all of that plays out next week. Verse 30 says, But Sarai was barren. She had no child. The fact that Sarai was barren is a detail that the author knows will be important to us. This is setting up a miracle that will be performed for Abraham and Sarah in the birth of their son, Isaac. Verse 31, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, the city Haran, and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we have some more insight into Terah's life, actually in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. That's an interesting insight that we get into Terah. He was an idolater. He worshipped other gods. Abraham came from an idolatrous family. He became a great nation. He became the father of the Israelites. And God called him out of an idolatrous family. And traditional Jewish rabbinical sources tell us that Terah was actually an idol maker in Ur of the Chaldees. In Acts 7, Stephen is giving his address, and 
he's recounting the history of Israel. And he begins with Abraham. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. So Stephen says that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. That would be Ur of the Chaldees, where he was from. Then he went to Haran. That would be up north and dwelt still with his family. We see here in our text in Genesis, verse 31, Terah, Abram's father, took basically the whole clan with him they all went up to dwell in Haran. And from there, he came out of Haran and went to where God called him in Canaan. So when we look at chapter 12 next week, we have a good background as to what is actually happening. At least one of the times that God called Abram out from his home He was still in Ur of the Chaldees, in Mesopotamia, and that was his hometown. Now, I say at least one of the times that God called him because there's a hint at the beginning of chapter 12 that God actually called Abraham multiple times, or at least continued to press on his heart that he needed to leave his family, leave his hometown, and go somewhere else. And Stephen clarifies in Acts 7 that Abraham didn't leave Haran for Canaan until his father Terah had died. After God called him, this is the words of Stephen, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, speaking of Canaan. It seems that Abraham's family held him back from what God was calling him to do. And it's an unfortunate reality, but we encounter that all too often. His father, an idolater, and Abraham himself was an idolater until he began following the one true God. And it appears to have been very difficult for him to shake off the things of the world in search for God. It seems that the things of this world held him back to a degree from his heavenly calling. This is a powerful display of God's sovereignty. Why did he choose Abram? Why did he choose this son of an idol maker to be the father of his people? That's a question we have to wrestle with. Why him? Surely there were some easier options, at least in our eyes, for God to choose to father the nation of his people. Surely there were some men who already knew God who were already following God, that he could just as well have 
have made the Father bless them with all these descendants. Yet he chose Abram. In fact, we know that there was at least one man who was following God, the one true God, who was living contemporary with Abram. Why didn't he choose him? Some people place Job of the book of Job contemporary with Abraham. Others place him before the flood. If he was living at the same time as Abram, he would have been a great candidate for the father of a nation, at least from our point of view, right? He was blameless and upright. He revered God. It says he hated evil. He was on the straight and narrow, it seems. Seems he would have been a good, good choice. But even if Job was not living during that time, there's one man that we know was. When we come to Genesis 14, we're introduced to this enigmatic character, Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? That's a big question that we see. The text says that he was, quote, a priest of the Most High God. He knew God. How? This is before the nation Israel. This is before the Torah, before the law. There was no church. There was no Levitical priesthood. But this Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Why did God not choose Melchizedek? He was obviously doing some things right. And we even see him in the text as a type of Jesus Christ who is to come. Seems to me like the perfect choice. God did not choose Melchizedek. He chose an idolatrous family to bring his nation out of. Why? And of course, it's foolish to really question God's decisions. And I'm not doing that. I only do this to make a point. God chooses who he wills. We would have done it totally different. That's why we're not God. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And Paul gives us insight here into why God works this way. He continues that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's why God works this way. It's so foreign to us, but God does not need our help. He does not need to choose the strong to get his purposes accomplished. In fact, he chooses the weak. 
to confound the strong. And in other scripture, he explains why he chose Israel. It's because they were weak. It's because there were so many nations around them that could destroy them. And yet, God chose this small people to bring into a great nation. And through Abraham, every nation is blessed. Certainly we are blessed because we've been grafted into this tree. And we, are, we are so blessed because we get to partake of the fruit that was sown in Abraham's day. We are all spiritual children of Abraham if we are in Christ. That no flesh should glory in his presence. You remember Nimrod? His flesh gloried in God's presence. He was a mighty hunter of men before the Lord. It was his idea, hey, let's consolidate power. Let's build this tower. Let's try to do things our way. We will make a name for ourselves. Abraham is called by God. God says, I'm going to choose you. And you need to leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. He didn't know where he was going. He knew that God would lead him there. And it was that faith that took Abraham to a nation. Just ask Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Abraham, his name is revered among all of those. It didn't happen like Nimrod wanted it to happen. It happened the way that God ordained it to happen. And in his sovereignty, he chose Abraham. Now, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of chapter 11, we've covered two to 3,000 years of human history, depending on who you ask. But from the beginning of chapter 12, through the birth of Christ, we have another roughly 2,000 years of human history. So things start to slow down as far as Scripture is concerned, after chapter 11. And we get more details. Now, don't worry, we're not going to slow down. We're actually going to speed up as we get through the narrative part of Genesis. A lot of changes occurred in those first 11 chapters. This is the portion of Scripture that is known as prehistory. And it's funny that it's called that because it obviously is included in history because we have it here, but that's just what it's called. The next major section of Genesis starts in chapter 11 through chapter 50, the end of the book. And this section details the journeys of the patriarchs. We'll see, that, we'll see the accounts of the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we've already met Abraham this morning. Chapter 12 continues with his story. And then we will follow it down through his son and his son and his son. And we are going to close our study right there at the end of chapter 11. This week, before you come back next week, 
I've got some homework for you. I want you to read chapters 12 and 13 and Acts 7. I want you to have that background if you can. Just read those three chapters. So if you would, please close with me in a word of prayer. Thank you.